Hello, hello, friends and gamers. In this episode, I talked with my brother, Nathan. What a lot of people don't know is his real name's Nathaniel, but he goes by Nathan because I think it's more unique. And, you know, I, I don't know the full story on that one, but that's what he goes by. Um, Nathan is a writer, explorer, and self-described Bitcoiner. The only thing he believes in more than freedom is creativity. And I do want to say that my brother is one of the most creative, hardworking people I've ever met. Um, he seriously, in most situations where people would give up or just go, gosh, I must be doing something wrong or I can't understand things, he uh, truly keeps moving forward and keeps doing his best. And just he's always got something up his sleeve. He'll even admit in situations where he's like, wow, I should be really discouraged or depressed about this, but I still find things to look forward to be happy about. And so I always cater that, that he has a very strong mind. And he's also been through a lot in that sense that I think he's learned to flex and grow and work his mind to be strong and allow him to bounce back from a lot of things, just like any human being. He has his down days, obviously, but he's really good about keeping himself going forward and always trying to improve. And he's taught me a lot of really valuable lessons in that sense. I want to be completely honest, and I probably never would have started the Web3 Gamer if he hadn't started talking to me about cryptocurrencies way back in the day at this point. We'll say 2017 is when I started learning about it, but really 2019 is 2020 is when he started really driving it home for me. But I mean, I remember him talking about so many different cryptocurrencies for so long and being like, huh, I don't know, it's interesting. I'm trying to learn more about it, but it was just kind of hard back then. And um, when he started working in it, I was like, wow, this is a place where you can really have a career. And I was like, maybe I should try doing it too, because I had really enjoyed it. Funny enough, I ended up working for someone else and then pivoted into this podcast. But I will also admit, as somebody who's known about podcasts for literally over a decade, I didn't start listening to or getting engaged with podcasts until he started showing me podcasts. So you could argue I am my brother's apprentice. And I don't say that in a bad way. I'm, I'm happy to be his apprentice. But um, he's taught me a lot. And I always value the conversations we have. Funny enough, we have conversations like this all the time. And it was his idea to go, let's record one for the podcast. So I was more than happy. And I'll definitely have him on again in the future because we already have these conversations. So to be able to record it and turn it into content is just great. And I hope that anybody listening benefits and enjoys this conversation because I enjoyed it. I am Matthew, and this is the Web3 Gamer. Tired of your pork chops not having enough traceability? Wish you could prove their juiciness on the blockchain? Introducing Block Chops, the world's first and perhaps only pork chops on the blockchain. Each comes with their own NFT. That's non-fungible tenderloin. So you won't just enjoy a lip-smacking pork chop. You'll own a unique digital collectible associated with it. Talk about a mouth-watering investment. Each delicious bite can be traced back to its farm-to-fork journey. Every detail is recorded in the immutable ledger of the blockchain. So try Block Chops today. Hi, I'm Matthew, and this is the Web3 Gamer. I am here with Nathan Simone, an all-around cool dude. If you're wondering why we have the same last name, uh, well, it's just total happenstance. Yeah, Matthew, there's a lot of people with the last name Simone that are Italian, that are into crypto, that uh you know think red dead redemption 2 is the greatest game of all time it's not a coincidence we're not related at all it's just you know the way it is dude yeah and i mean why to you is red dead redemption 2 the greatest video game of all time 
You know, Matthew, we could talk about that all day, and I'm sure that we'll definitely get into it. But I just want to tell people in the audience here that in order to get on this podcast, the line was like seven people long. I had to put in half a Bitcoin, and I had to schedule this at a very inopportune time to me. So I just want to thank this schlub for letting me on his podcast. He's doing lots of interesting things. Um, I am the one who taught him about crypto. Yeah, but he's the one who taught me about gaming. And I feel like we're both teaching each other about life in different ways. So I'm definitely excited to have this conversation. And I feel like it's going to be fruitful to people that are out there listening. The way that I approach podcasts, Matthew, and I don't know if you feel the same way. The way that I always approach podcasts is I never, ever, ever want to record a podcast that I wouldn't want to listen to. So I think sure. it's going to be fun. I think it's going to be interesting. And I'm interested to see here what you want to talk about. I know I know you mentioned gaming, but I feel like we should start off with Web3 stuff and, and crypto stuff. So, you know, I, I'd like to know this. How, like, why are you fascinated by Web3? And I'd love to know what you think of as your crypto origin story. Well, crypto origin story, I can literally remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> I was uh on my third attempt in college having failed out three different times sitting in the car going back from the community college in traffic and hearing on the radio they're like bitcoin has surged past the seventeen thousand dollar mark and i was like oh that stuff when i was in high school and uh people just used it to buy drugs on the silk road and i was like i can't believe that stuff's still around one and two i can't believe it's taking off as crazy and then i remember having a friend sending me a picture of the metallic Bitcoin token going, yeah, I just bought a whole Bitcoin. Having no idea of the concept of being like, that's not how it works, dude. <laughs> but being like, hey, if, you, if it's worth it to you. And it was somebody who was very savvy with investing. So I was like, hey, I could see it doing really well for you. Uh, didn't really pay any much attention to it until I guess I want to say, you know, probably, gosh, since you started in 2016, you were just talking about it all the time. I feel like I got a lot of happenstance through the grapevine from you, but I didn't really delve into it till 2019 where you were just like, oh, let me just like show you stuff. And you would just be like, hey, set up this wallet. Let me send you like five or $10 of crypto and be like, this is how it works. This is how it goes. And then just really that and a lot of self-education, but a lot of you just educating me and showing me things and telling me things that eventually I got to the point where I was like, yeah, I don't think this is going away. It's clearly has a wild ride. It has a lot of people behind it. And then obviously, you know, there was a period there where we were both very into libertarianism. So like it just kind of fell in line with crypto was in this was very much in that uh, on the Venn diagram in that line of things. So it kind of just made sense as well. But I think really too, like once COVID hit and like the idea of just not having control over my bank account or funding, even though I knew that for the longest time really hit home, that really made me want to delve more into it as a reserve asset, as a reserve of my financial wealth and preservation and a way to outpace inflation and just grow. You know, that's really interesting because I don't think I ever heard that story of where you were coming home from <clears throat> Georgia Perimeter Community College and hearing Bitcoin on the radio. I, I sort of want to just I want to go back to that and, and, and touch on it real quick because I think that there's a lot of people out there who um, maybe they haven't taken the standard traditional uh, education path. And what's interesting is people might not know this about you. You actually have a master's degree and you're definitely one of the smartest dudes I know in a lot of ways. But if you had to have one, you know, check mark that wasn't checked off the box is that 
you definitely didn't go the four years to college and then the two years to graduate school. You did like a zigzag line. But what I think is fascinating is that your zigzag line um, probably will end up being more profitable long term than most people's straight lines or most people's conventional paths because you learned a lot of lessons the hard way and you learned by doing, which is a, a major reinforcement for learning and uh, you know, not to get too deep, but like you learned a lot of lessons the hard way. And I, I feel like this hearing about Bitcoin on the radio when it was $17,000, which I think you said it was 2018. I'm trying to think about when that would have been um, in Bitcoin's price history because I've been paying attention to it since 2016. Do you remember whether it was like on NPR? Like, can, can we just go back to that moment real quick? Where Because it seems like things sort of clicked there. Sure. So it was definitely 2017. It was on NPR of all places. And it was obviously before the, I guess I don't want to say post COVID bull run, but there was that COVID bull run. It was the bull run before that. And it was just on a tear. And basically, I think the only reason they were reporting it on the news is because it had kept going up and everybody was like, oh, this crazy Bitcoin thing that isn't backed by anything. It doesn't mean anything. And it just kept popping up everywhere. Like I think I was just listening to these, and like every day they were just talking about it going higher and higher. And I was like, "Man, this is this is crazy." I literally remember in 2013 working at Whole Foods, and some dude had talked about how he's like, when it was, gosh, I mean, 2013, it couldn't have been more than a thousand dollars a coin, if that. It had to be very low at that point. Some dude, all I remember is he's like, "My friend just sold 30 Bitcoin and he bought himself a brand new car." <laughs> and I thought that was crazy because I was like, dude, that's that stuff that like, again, before I really understood everything, I was like, oh, dude, that stuff that's like that money, like made out of nothing, printed out of thin air. Um, like it's not backed by anything. Like people just perceive it as value, let alone once you learn about the real like you know, capitalist economics and figure out that there's a lot of similarities there. Um, it just blew my mind that I thought that was kind of the be all end. I was like, oh, 2013, it'll never come back. It'll be crazy. You know, like a lot of people say in 2017 came back even harder, even more. I was like, man, I bet that dude's mad that he sold his Bitcoin and bought a car. He probably could have bought like six or seven cars now, but how could you know? He probably was like, oh, it's going to crash. This is the highest it's ever going to go. Basically, what I was getting to is 2013, I thought about it. I was like, wow, I could have bought at least five Bitcoin with my paltry grocery store wages. And I never did because I didn't think about it or care about it or understand anything about it. Then 2017, still could have bought a lot more than I bought um, after that but again i didn't understand it i didn't know about it so i was just like oh this interesting thing and i don't i think it just clicked there that i was like oh it's like any other financial asset it has its cycles and clearly there's a perception of value and people believe in it for the long term that like crypto's not going away well i wouldn't feel too bad about it because you know obviously like i said i've been paying attention to this since 2016 and you know this story but i'll tell it for your audience I definitely remember when you could buy crypto on PayPal, but not from PayPal, right? You were just buying it from random people on PayPal. In particular, shout out to my guy, Greg, over at We Sell Crypto. Greg was a stand-up dude, and he would sell crypto on PayPal. And obviously, he must have been mining it. I don't know where he would have gotten it other than you could talk to him over Reddit. You could talk to him over uh, you know, the earlier versions of Twitter and I just remember seeing that the highest price asset that he sold was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was bouncing around between 275 and $300, which, you know, 
now as we're recording this, it's essentially at $30,000. It's, it's slightly below that, but it's, it's in that range. It's almost becoming an institutional asset because BlackRock and I mean, Vanguard literally now owns Bitcoin mining stocks. So it's like, <laughs> if it's a Ponzi, Vanguard's going to have a really bad day. <laughs> but um, I remember thinking when I looked at the $300 price, here, here was my exact thought. It was, why would I pay $300 for like some sort of computer code? Like, I just don't get this. Like, what am I getting? Which as I say it out loud now is interesting because you literally can go on um, Fiverr or all sorts of labor marketplaces, digital labor marketplaces. And if you don't want to write a program yourself, you could pay somebody $300 for code. Like computer code is valuable, but I just didn't understand what Bitcoin actually was. And $300 at the time was quite a lot of money to me. Of course, now I wish I'd just, you know, I wish I'd just put a bunch of it on a credit card and held it. I was also an early Coinbase customer pre the 2017 bull run. And I clearly remember if, if you go onto my Coinbase account now, there's still transactions where it says that I bought crypto with a credit card, which is now illegal. You're just simply not allowed to do that uh, <laughs> because it's the same reason you're not allowed to buy stocks on a credit card. So like, you know, if I had a time machine, I'd tell myself, hey, you know that credit that you're building that you're going to do a really good job with because you're a good financial steward and you're not going crazy buying a bunch of whole stuff you don't need and you have the, you're fortunate enough to live at home? Go and buy $5,000 worth of Bitcoin. It's okay whatever interest you pay on it because maybe it'll motivate you to get a job or do something else. But that will be worth so much that whatever interest you pay on the credit card is going to be outpaced by Bitcoin's growth. And you just don't know. So instead of buying Bitcoin... I bought um, a decent amount of Litecoin. I think I bought like 20 Litecoin. I bought Dogecoin when it was beneath a penny, when it was just a whole bunch of zeros. And then I actually bought one of the first proof of stake currencies, which was called Redcoin, which definitely could have been like the social media tipping coin of Reddit. And with those three cryptos, I was able to learn all about crypto for basically less than $100. And... Um, to say that they were the early days is sort of an understatement. You might remember me making paper wallets on an old computer that I had where like you had to keep it disconnected from the internet and you had to hook it up to a printer and you had to print them out. And like, it was all very confusing to me, but I'm really glad that I did it because I also made a lot of mistakes early. So I clearly remember losing $300 worth of Litecoin by sending it to the wrong address because I didn't check the last four, like a basic thing now that even most apps will do for you. They'll check whether the address is correct address and good that I learned it then instead of now. Um, but it's just one of those things where like, you don't know until you know, people still don't understand crypto now and <laughs> being able to be like, wait, what do you mean? I can't get it back. And then understanding how, cryptographic protocols work and how cryptocurrency works just totally fascinating so completely i literally was just reading a reddit post earlier today where some dude was like um and once again i i think we both agree on this that i'm like cold storage reigns supreme always and it blows my mind how people even just have like a thousand dollars in a mobile wallet. And I'm like, that's a thousand dollars too much. I just wouldn't do it. But I was reading a post about a dude who's like, well, I had seven thousand dollars of ETH in a mobile wallet. And I guess he was doing 
he was on a gambling website and he claims he won $165,000 in ETH. And he's like, clearly somebody had my seed phrase because as soon as I deposit it, it immediately got swept. And he had the um, the transaction ID and he's like, I'm trying to figure out if somebody installed Sweeper or Sweepware, you know, where basically Sweepware is anytime any amount gets deposited, it automatically clears it out. But he's like, I don't think that's the case because there's still $2 in there. <laughs> and it's just, he basically, I, I felt bad. He's like, I have a ledger. I didn't put it on there. I should have put it on there. He basically was like, learn from my mistake. He's like, this was a dumb reason. I knew all the things. They shouldn't have happened to me. And I will admit, I've had stupid things as we've discussed. So I think this is a good segue into why you shouldn't invest in projects or things you don't fully understand. As somebody who has done that for multiple projects and gotten burned hardcore of me just me just going, well, it is gambling. Maybe I'll just roll the dice and hopefully it pans out. And honestly, nine times out of 10, it does not pan out. It just, it's like you just burned the money and that was the entertainment. It was like, oh, it was fun to watch it burn. Like, and that was the whole point of doing it. Um, I think as we talked about, there was one project. Uh, I won't name it because I don't want to throw them under the rug or anything because I don't think it was their fault. It's just with a lot of these projects, they have telegrams or they have discords. Obviously, people who are scammers get into here. When people ask questions because they know they're over inundated with people and not enough support, they'll make their name like whatever project admin and they'll message you and reach out and go, hey, I can help you with your problem. And you go, oh, great. Like, and you just don't think anything of it. And I had one where I had exchanged some Cardano for their native token and it got it basically got stuck in the airdrop. And I didn't realize a lot of people were having that issue and it was just going to solve itself. So I was like, hey, I have like Basically, my tokens are stuck in the airdrop. I've already paid my Cardano. What can I do? Some dude messaged me like, oh, yeah, I can help you out. And what he kept saying, I was like, this sounds really sketchy. He was like, yeah, if you just give me an extra $300 in Cardano, it'll fix everything. And I was like, I don't know, man. This just sounds like a scam. But what's even worse is me saying that out loud. I still did it. And then what do you know? Poof, he was immediately gone. I just lost $300 in Cardano. And I was like, I have no one to blame but myself. I, I... I didn't trust, I basically, my gut was telling me like, this doesn't sound right. This seems like a scam. And what did I do? I still went through with it. And that's, that was one of the things that solidified for me going, yeah, I'm really sick of these altcoin meme coin projects because there's not enough people to run things. And until you really like, once again, learning the lessons the hard way, until you go through those things, like five, six times, you're like, you know what? I'm a, I'm a grown ass adult. I should know not to do something like this. It's stupid that I had to learn it the hard way multiple times. But by God, now that I've learned it the hard multiple times, like you will never catch me slipping again on this very instance. Well, I mean, yeah, and it, it's unfortunate that that had to happen to you. But at the same time, um, you know, I mean, $300 is nothing compared to the massive fraud of FTX or any of the stuff that happened in 2022. Um, as you know, I actually used to work at an altcoin exchange that I, I also won't name. Uh, just, you know, just out of privacy sake. And um, I've, you know, I've seen from the inside how the altcoin ecosystem works. And I think that I can comfortably say that probably 95% of crypto is just an outright scam. Some of it is malicious, like some of it is uh, uh, Ponzi's, some of it is bad actors that are using an unregulated ecosystem to siphon money off of people. And then I actually think a good chunk of it is people that mean well, people that would have had startups in the traditional world or things like that. But because in the uh, the, tr the regular world, the physical world, 
there are regulations and barriers to stop things from getting out of control before people really fail. Um, it's actually like you could look at the amount of startups that we have in the real world. And even though a large number of them fail, it's nothing compared to how many startups and how many businesses there would be if there were just no laws, right? If we were just like in an anarcho-capitalist libertarian society. So I, I always kind of compare crypto to the Wild West, which is one of my favorite historical periods ever. Um, and I, you know, I live in the West. I live in Denver, beautiful state of Colorado. But what I always try and tell people, and I never give financial advice when it comes to, to crypto, um, uh, I can I can steer people the right way, but what I always tell people is that it really is like living in the Wild West, digitally, uh, with digital assets, with digital finances, with all sorts of stuff. It can be hard to trust people, but the good part of this and the thing that is so nice about decentralization and these cryptographic protocols is that if you're willing to take responsibility for your actions and you're willing to learn it is meritocratic in the same way that if you wanted to protect yourself in the old West and you learned how to use a gun or you learned a skill or you learned a trade or you sort of knew what was going on with the local politics or the local territory, you could stay safe. But it means that you have to take it sort of into your own hands. And that's a new thing for a lot of people. So if I could definitely recommend anything to if there are any beginners that are listening or if there are any people that are new to crypto, that this seems scary to them. It's okay to be scared by it, but you just have to understand that self-custody and learning how to control these digital assets so that you're not reliant on somebody else or so that you don't get manipulated um, through, a, through, through another human, like you just said, Matthew. Um, it's all just about learning about hardware wallets, learning about safe practices, stuff that if you take probably a couple of days to a week to learn, anybody can master. Yeah. And I think now, I mean, I feel like even when you were teaching me so much of this, there was a lot of really good resources on YouTube to watch. But now I feel like it's gotten even better and more definitive. And people have really fleshed out like they understand the pain points for beginners and how to make it super easy and straightforward. Um, even to the point where like most Web3 gaming platforms are just like, look, if you just want to play the game and you don't care about owning the assets, like we've been able to remove the wallet aspect of things. So you don't have to even have a wallet and like own the assets. So like we get it. Some people just are like, I don't care. I just want to play the game. But then they literally will have their own section where they're like, here's a step-by-step -step guide with video instructions of you're like, but maybe I do want to own my character or own these things in the game. And they're like, okay, here's literally how you set it up. Here's all the safe practices. Here's what you should never do. Here's what's okay to do. And they, I think they do a really good job now you know, if you can read instructions and follow directions, like it's pretty, it's pretty hard now not to get it even for a beginner. Whereas I feel like before it used to be like, just click this button and set up your wallet. And you're like, I don't, I don't get all the steps in between. Now they've, people have well listed out all the steps in between be like, oh, you might see this. No, this is what it means. Then you'll go here, here, here. You may need to deposit funding. How would you do that? Oh, you can go through this, go through that. So it seems more fleshed out now for the better. And I feel like a lot of, content creators now too are like look here's some really common scams or things to watch out for because now they've become so common and we're so aware of them that for people who would never think to you know perfect example like me you know i thought that sounded sketchy but i still did it but for somebody new i could see how they'd be like oh yeah they're just genuinely like this is the admin team trying to help me and they're like 
yeah, what you don't know is anybody can steal the profile picture, name their Telegram, whatever the hell they want, and join any fucking Telegram channel, making it super easy for them to just basically be like a, a goddamn spy. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And I, I sort of want to backtrack here a little bit to where I may have been, I may have seemed like a little negative when I said 95% of crypto is a scam, but you have to understand that number as crypto continues to go mainstream and evolve and be literally worldwide, that 5% probably involves the top 100 projects that you see on CoinMarketCap, which is a good way to see the market capitalization or the financialization of the crypto markets. And there's still millions and millions of good actors in the crypto ecosystem, people that believe in freedom and responsibility and very creative people and very technologically literate people that would never scam you that genuinely want to help. It's just because of the nature of it being an unregulated market, because of the nature of it being on the internet, because of the massive financial reward that criminals can get from relatively little risk, I mean, without having to leave their house, it's just going to be the nature of this ecosystem that you're going to have to be better safe than sorry. So once again, any beginners listening, I would definitely follow the maxims of better safe than sorry. If it feels too good to be true, just sit on it for a couple of days and try and find out some resources about like, you know, like if somebody messages you in an admin group and they're like, hey, do this. That might actually be the admin messaging you. It's okay to sit out for a day or two before you send them the funds or something like that to figure out whether that's legitimate or not. And then the second best thing you can do, other than um, you know watching resources like like you just said from all these great creators online, is I would say once you have more than five hundred dollars in various cryptocurrencies, whichever ones you have, definitely invest in a hardware wallet like Ledger or treasure. Now, I know that there's some serious cryptocurrency enthusiasts that they don't like those companies anymore because of various reasons. But I'm, I'm telling you, if you're a beginner, if you're just starting out, buying a $75 to $100 hardware wallet to learn how to self-custody, to learn how they work, to put your stuff on there, it's not going to be a bad investment decision. You can always level up or not use them anymore if you keep increasing your holdings or you get more into other stuff. But as you've said before, keeping stuff on a phone or keeping stuff in a non-secure manner, it's just not going to be good long-term. And eventually you're going to have to learn these things. So it's a small investment to potentially make really big rewards, if only in self-knowledge in the long run. Yeah, and I, I just treat all those as expensive lessons that I didn't want to pay for, but I did pay for. Um, but I will say, too, a thing you can do in a lot of those Telegram groups that I learned after the fact, or Discord, is if somebody messages you and is claiming to be an admin, just go to the general chat and go, hey, is so-and-so under this name an actual admin? And literally within five to ten minutes, people will go, oh, yeah, they're legit, or go, nope, that's a scam, or stop responding to them, because people are actually really good in the group about knowing. And you'll notice in a lot of these groups, the admins will make their name whatever admin. I will never message you first. <laughs> so that get, so that lets you know that the admins don't randomly reach out to people. So that is a very common thing. It's unfortunate it's become a common scam, but a common thing that admins have to literally say, I will never message you first. Look, it's literally in my name in the server. Like, And it's unfortunate that it just goes that way, but that's what it's become. And I would say, too, you're right that, you know, 
it's different when a project comes out like Pepe, where they're like, we're literally just a meme token. That's the whole point. It's just supposed to be funny and fun. Our supply is 420, 69, nice. And like, we're not trying to do anything serious or crazy. We're just trying to like have fun and be goofy. And then it happens to like go through the, the roof and in good ways for some people, terrible ways for others. But like, it's just like Doge where until recently when Doge after the way after the fact was like, Hey, we're going to try and like actually make this a legitimate project. They're like, it's a meme coin. It has no value. It's, it's frivolous fun. We just created it because, and the fact that it ever went to an actual value standpoint, people were just like, this is complete insanity. The creators included were like this. How does this have value? There's no utility to this. We just made it as a goof. Like, but there are some projects that come out and are trying to be legit, like you said, like the top 100. So it depends. There, some people come out. I'll end this. People come out and will ultimately say what their project is. Sometimes you have to wait around for the long term to decide if that's the case. Sometimes they come out and make empty promises and you're like, it's too soon to tell. And sometimes they come out and just go, this is just for fun. Like, this isn't serious. If anybody makes any money off this, congrats, because we have no idea how. You know, Matthew, you say that they have no value, but uh, I remember making a prediction a year ago that Musk Melon, which was a a <clears throat> meme token, would be the backbone of the world's financial system by 2025. I've now adjusted that to Pepe to where it will be the backbone of the world's financial system by 2030. <laughs> All joking aside, meme tokens are, yeah, that's another thing that it gets beginners in the space. It's, um, I'd actually love to talk with you about that because you're a big collectibles guy. Like you collect cards, you have, um, action figures, tokens, like you have all sorts of stuff. Video games are a huge video game collector, which I mean, makes sense. It's like this dude's a web three gamer. Um, I, you know, I, once again, I had Dogecoin before it blew up and before Elon Musk, um, made it into a thing, which I'd bought a whole bunch more, but Hey, you know, another expensive lesson going into the fundamentals of, of crypto projects. I sort of wonder whether meme tokens serve the same purpose as trading cards or fan fiction or these action figures in the sense that they're a digitized version of, um, of something that doesn't necessarily have a scarce supply, but kind of can. But it's also a little bit more useful. I'll give an example, and then I want to hear you respond. So, like, people forget that Dogecoin early on. Dogecoin is literally a fork of Bitcoin. Um, actually, it might be a fork of Litecoin. No, I want to say that it's a fork of Bitcoin. It uses a different um, script to make it easier to mine. And the joke early on was one Doge equals one Doge. It has an infinite supply. Like, you can go back and look at the history of Dogecoin and the creators literally said, hey, we thought cryptocurrency was kind of silly. We were programmers. We're making it as a joke. So when I tell people that if you understand that Dogecoin is a joke that has literally been commodified and should not have any market value, that's the reality of it. It doesn't mean I hate Dogecoin or anything like that. I still think it's great. It's one of the original meme coins. And if you look early on at Dogecoin's history in Reddit, they sponsored the Jamaican bobsled team. They had a NASCAR car that they um, put a logo on. They did a bunch of charity stuff for like, um, I think, Water in Africa, and they helped people. They were just like a very silly community that used the nominal value of this token to get stuff done. But Dogecoin has, unless they've changed this recently, Dogecoin has an unlimited supply um, if you mine Dogecoin, you can make 
I think a pretty penny nowadays, nothing compared to Bitcoin or any of the crazy things. I think it's in the top 20 in coin market cap, might even be in the top 10 now. Um, so it's it's just a commodified joke and it's it's sort of crazy. But when I sort of think about it, I sort of think about like Funko Pops or Pokemon cards or anything else where people clearly like it. There's a big community around it. It has value, but you'd never be able to seriously tell me that like Wizards of the Coast can't just print more Pokemon cards or that they can't just make more Funko Pops. And I know that certain ones have more value because they're part of the original set or because they have the serial number, but it's just a simply a different thing compared to gold or Bitcoin or a rare Picasso or something that it actually is finite and scarce and just cannot be reproduced. But yet it has value because of the community around it, because of the interesting things you can do with it. And honestly, just because it's fun, right? It's like, I don't hate Funko Pops either. They're fun. They're cool. They tie back to all these sorts of things. So I'd love to know what you think of like, how are meme coins and maybe collectibles, since you're a big collectibles guy, related or not related at all? So you were right. I think you went back and forth, but Dogecoin was a fork of Litecoin. Okay. I did not know about all the um, all that charitable work they did in the beginning, and I did not know about the Jamaican sure. bobsled team or um, NASCAR. Really? That's really cool. And so I can like that because or I can get behind that. Like, you're right. I, I probably was unfair to say it had no value. More so was it had no, it should say they did not have a designated utility for it other than commodifying uh a meme and literally just like the general humor around said meme because it was in the early days of memes it was one of the memes like one of the biggest memes around there that people just did a lot of stuff with and i mean now we could literally look back at an art form of memes through the decades or even sub decades uh five-year sections and be like you can see how the art form has evolved and changed oh yeah um it's a part of our history definitely and so it's tough to say with meme coins and stuff that commodifying them as an asset as a collectible rather is is difficult because when i think about all the collectibles i have there is scarcity inherent which brings value to them and since we're talking about physical goods versus digital goods with the physical goods the condition of said physical good can either increase or decrease its value so if we just talk about an old N64 game, the box, the manual, the insert, all that jazz. Obviously, if it looks like somebody sat on it and then like, you know, spilled water on it, it's worth a lot less money than somebody who's like, I literally bought it, left it in the plastic, put it in like airtight UV protected storage for the last 30 years. And you're like, dude, this looks like you just pulled it off a Toys R Us shelf in 1994. Because like, I basically did. And so that will drive a higher value than obviously the person who sat on theirs and spilled water all over it. And so it's hard to, you can't really make that comparison with digital collectibles because the scarcity can still be inherent depending on the project. And so that's the biggest bridge between the two. But condition of a digital collectible, unless there's some way to um, inherently maybe say with like traits or rarity, things of that nature, you could probably try and make that a crossover. That would inherently increase the price one way or another, which I think we've seen with a lot of NFT projects. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's pretty much those two things. It's always going to be scarcity and rarity, meaning how hard is it to get this collectible versus another? Because that's the same with physical collectibles too. I mean, there are games where they're like, 
yeah, there was only 5,000 of these produced because it was made by a small company. It bombed at launch and they did that one run and go, well, that we couldn't even sell these 5,000 copies. Why would we make 5,000 more? And so then people find the game later go, it's actually an okay or fun game or people who just are, there are a lot of completionists out there. They're like, I just want to complete the whole set. They're like, well, I got to have that game. And you're like, yeah, dude, there's only 5,000 of them made. And you're like, okay, so that means it's going to be really hard to get. It's also going to drive up the price. And once somebody knows that and goes, well, I ain't taking anything less than 5K for it. People can go, you're crazy. But as soon as somebody pays 5K for it, they go, oh, so that's the new that's the new bottom market price, right? And then that's what happens with the collectible market. I will say this. I feel really lucky getting a lot of my collectibles before COVID because clearly once COVID hit, and I mean, the whole economy kind of went crazy, but collectibles as a whole went through the roof all across the board. And I don't know if it's because people were home and wanted to collect collectibles, wanted to like play with collectibles or do things, but... I'll just say this. There was a lot of stuff I had that literally doubled in value and I did nothing to it or anything different. It's not like some insane amount of time passed. It was just like the market demanded more. There wasn't as much to meet the supply. And so people were charging different prices going, well, market market price meets demand. I can set the price. And so that happened with a lot of stuff where I was just like, holy cow, if I sold everything now, I would have made a lot of money. But I was like, well, I didn't get this stuff because I wanted to resell it. I have bought some stuff with the intention of being like, I'll just hold it and resell it. But um, that's mostly trading cards for me, like Magic the Gathering. And you're totally right. That is a big criticism of Magic the Gathering is when they reprint old sets, people go, what the heck? So now this one really rare card that's worth a lot of money is going to be worth less because you reprinted it. So it's not as scarce. But then there are people who go, no, no, no. The original reprint is always going to be worth way more than the new reprint, and we'll count them as separate categories of the scarce value of goods. So it's interesting to think you're like, maybe there's a thousand total, five hundred in the original print, five hundred in the reprint. And they're like the five hundred original are always going to be worth way more than the five hundred reprints. But as a whole, Wizards of the Coast has just gone mad with printing their cards and making more and more money. You can look back historically that they used to only print four to 10 sets per year. And now they print somewhere between like 30 and 40 sets per year. And people are kind of just like, yeah, it feels like they're just kind of going for the cash grab 24 seven. So it's an interesting thing where you're like, are they scarce? You're like in a set. Sure. But you're like, but there's so many sets coming out. Are they really worth it? And you're like the market, the market decides that people who compete in the tournaments decide, is this a good card? Yeah. Then it's going to be worth more. I'm going to pay more money for it. So every set has its instance or cards. And I think that kind of follows to tie this back into meme co- meme coins and meme tokens there are certain ones that people will be more invested in like pepe token where they're like yeah pepe is a classic meme there are people who are like dude pepe's been like my meme my whole life i love pepe versus people who are like oh dogecoin's classic dogecoin's my meme my whole life there are plenty of people out there who surely just get it because they're like i just want to collect a part of it because it's like a meme i grew up with then it happens to go through the roof and they're like holy crap my Pepe token that I bought for like $30 is worth 3000 Why wouldn't I sell it? And so some people just cash out that way. Some people never even know it. They just look back and they're like, oh, dang, if I'd, if I'd been paying attention and sold two months ago, I could have $3 million. Now it's worth like $300. And you're like, whatever. I'm still just glad I hold Pepe token. I didn't really want to sell it anyways. Yeah, and I just want to put a, a quick caveat into that because I people will hear that and they'll think that, oh, it's okay to just gamble on altcoins and go crazy with the new thing. Hey, you can do whatever you want to. That's the great thing about an open market. But I'd, I'd sort of urge people to look at the historical data of Pepecoin is the most recent example of this sort of meme coin mania. I think Pepecoin's market cap got up to a billion dollars, if I'm 
not in two billion. It was two, two billion. billion. <laughs> okay, but at its height, I believe, um, and once again, this is all open information on Coin Market Cap. I believe its liquidity was only something like twenty-five million dollars. So you could say, oh, well, that's still twenty-five million dollars. Um, you know, that I could have exited from, or do this, or do that. One, because it's an altcoin, it's not trading on the major exchanges, so you're going to have to be a little bit more of a technically advanced person to get out. Um, and two, it's since it was an Ethereum-based token, my understanding is that the fees were enormous. I didn't actually trade it, um, so I don't have, I wasn't cognizant of what the actual fees were. Um, it was causing the chain to go crazy, uh, you know, have crazy amounts of usage. So I can only imagine what the fees were. So yes, there were definitely some stories where people put in $100, put in $500, and could have been potential millionaires. But I always question about were they able to get it out in time? Did they pay hundreds of thousands of dollars in fees? And then I definitely don't want to neglect that there were a lot of people who, as that kept going up, kept going up, put in money that they shouldn't have, that they needed for other things. They couldn't get it out, or they lost all their money in fees, and they just lost money. And that was the majority of people. So... I just want that to be a, a cautionary tale um, from Pepe Coin, sort of as we go forward. For anybody that's listening, that that thinks like, "Oh gosh, I should just, I should just keep gambling on this stuff," and it's so easy to make money. If it was so easy to make money, everybody would do it, and we'd all be millionaires wearing top hats. Uh, money does still <laughs> making money and creating value still does require a basic, a basic amount of work. But you touch on some interesting things here with meme coins and in relation to collectibles. And I sort of wanted to transition to, this is why I find Bitcoin ordinals so fascinating, is because while there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin, there, I'm going to mess this number up, there's going to be 21 quadrillion Satoshis. I think that's the number, <laughs> 21 quadrillion, however many zeros that is. And since Bitcoin ordinals are different than the majority of NFTs that just point to an image or point to someplace on an external server, they're literally inscribed on the Satoshis. There are, there's a reasonable case to be made, and of course this is still developing, that just buying any Bitcoin ordinal right now, could be any random JPEG you want, could be any random audio file, could be anything. It's simply going to be worth more in 10 years because there's only ever going to be so many Satoshis, there's only ever going to be so much storage space, and because Bitcoin, it looks like, nobody can predict the future, is going to be the dominant blockchain in the crypto market um, for a variety of uses. So it's always just an interesting thing thinking about collectibles, scarcity, what people are going to value. Um, as you sort of mentioned, price discovery, it's like somebody's not worth $5,000 until somebody's like, well, I'll pay $5,000 for it. And then perception becomes reality. So it's always a fascinating thing to think about. And it, there's no place that it happens as fast as the crypto markets. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. And it is funny that I do not even to just backpedal just one final comment on Pepe. I, I loved looking at the, um, you can look on CoinMarketCap and they'll tell you holders versus traders versus cruisers. Cruisers are people who I think hold it for less than 24 hours, which was 50% of Pepe holders. Wow. Uh, traders are people who hold it for less than one month, which was f the other 50%. Just know there's 0% holders meaning people who held it for more than a month and that is that is just simply based on all the addresses it was for so it's it's clearly most people treated it as a day trader 
or as a like week or two week trading mechanism. But that's besides the fact. I think now it currently has a market cap of like 500 million, which is crazy that it's still, it's still cruising. But there's a lot of people who believe in it like ship where they're just like, I'm just holding on for dear life because like I'm not going to, I'm not going to let it go. But with Bitcoin ordinals, I don't know what I know. You're right. You were saying the total number of Satoshis for all 21 million Bitcoin. I don't know because I know there's 100 million Satoshis per mm -hmm. Bitcoin. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not even, I'm not even going to pretend I can do that math. It's probably got to be like 2.15 with or one. No, 2.15 with like 15 zeros, which whatever that ends up being. Um, yeah, and I, I like that a lot because. It blew my mind learning about those when they were like, just so you know, everyone thought NFTs are inscribed on the blockchain, like the actual image. They're like, turns out it's not. So if it ever gets deleted, they're like, and you didn't save the JPEG. They're like, basically, like, there's no way for you to trace it on the chain other than you're like, oh, well, it was, it was assigned to this specific smart contract through the chain, but the actual image itself is not on chain, which blew my mind because i think i and everyone included was like oh of course it's on chain like that's like the whole point point." Mm -hmm. and i, I thought it was fascinating with with ordinals that that was the case of what you were like oh that's what i thought nfts were this whole time yes and that is what's so fascinating about bitcoin ordinals versus the rest of the digital collectibles market is bitcoin ordinals are actually working how most people think that nfts work on other chains i'm not saying that Ethereum can't do this or the Solana can't do this. Maybe they will in the future. It's just my understanding as a non-technical person is this is not the actual way that the the programs work for NFTs. And actually to to solve our question here, I've I've pulled up a page from River Financial, which is a great Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin only company. And they talk about there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. So, and one BTC has 100 million sats. Therefore, there will only ever be 2.1 quadrillion sats. So 2.1 quadrillion is that. Um, that's a lot of zeros. I, I can't even say how many zeros it is. But to sort of round off this point, um, yes, Bitcoin ordinals are actually, the reason why you even have to use a different wallet, there's now different wallets like Xverse, and I think it's called Hyro, and then there's another one. The reason why you have to use different wallets for Bitcoin ordinals is because these images and this data is inscribed on the sats. If you put it into a regular Bitcoin wallet, the Bitcoin network doesn't discriminate against sats. Every sat is a financial unit, just like every other sat. But obviously, you don't want to spend your sats or give them to somebody else that has your precious JPEG on it that you paid $30 for or whatever, because you want to be able to view it and view it through the ordinal viewer. Um, so... There's been all sorts of stuff being built on Bitcoin just like that. You know, you know that I'm a big fan of Stacks, which is going to enable DeFi and other stuff on Bitcoin. And it's just funny, too, because it sort of makes me feel like an old man. Like, I'm only 32, but I remember people telling me that I was crazy where they were like, you like Bitcoin? Why, could, like, why do you like Bitcoin? It, it doesn't have smart contracts. You can't do DeFi on it. Like, you can't do all this stuff. And I've now been around long enough that all that stuff is not only coming to Bitcoin, but it's thriving on Bitcoin. And this is not throwing any shade on any other chains. I'm not a Bitcoin maximalist. I just think it's funny that for so long, people, people are like, I don't like Bitcoin, and they have to go to these other crypto projects to do all sorts of other stuff. And now, 
you can have so much fun and be so productive on Bitcoin that if you only had to use Bitcoin, you can still just like make your mark on the world, um, and which is a beautiful thing. So yes, to, to, to round it off, Bitcoin ordinals are worth looking into. Um, I wouldn't put more than $100 in to, to play around with, to learn how the wallets work and to learn how all that stuff is. But there's some fantastic art and fantastic value that is happening on there. And getting back to our scarcity slash, uh, scarcity slash collectibles argument, there is an argument to be made that just anything on the Bitcoin blockchain, because it's such limited real estate, you can think about it as the biggest island in the crypto world, right? There's only ever going to be 21 million acres. If you have, you know, if you have 0.0001 of an acre, at some point, it's just going to be valuable because they can't make more, right? So it's, it's sort of like having a house on, you know, Manhattan Island or owning, you know, something like that. That's the hope. That's the future. Obviously, none of us can predict the future, but I find it fascinating. And I have eight Bitcoin ordinals now, and I'm probably definitely going to get more. And I don't mind that I'm spending Bitcoin to get them because it, helps the Bitcoin ecosystem, help the miners, help Bitcoin artists. It's just, it's a whole lot of interesting fun. No, for sure. I can agree with that. I'm actually sort of wondering when Web3 games, and you tell me if you've seen this, I'm wondering if there are going to be any Web3 games where ordinals are going to be like an NFT gate or like a ticket to get into play these games because... There are some Bitcoin games out, like I'm thinking of Hero of Bitcoin, and um, there's a couple of like pixel ones, but it's just not a huge thing in Bitcoin yet. It's definitely on other chains that can do faster transactions, loader speeds, you know, all sorts of other stuff. Sure. The, cho the chain of choice right now is Polygon. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, simply because you still get all the benefits of the Ethereum chain, but you get way reduced lower fees. And that seems to be where everybody is going. I also have really good security. And um, I've only seen one or two try to do like different chains. Like um, there's a general meta network is a company I interviewed that is out of Dubai. And they were actually, I had never heard of this company that I, of course I'm forgetting the name of the chain now without looking it up. They basically chose to go with this new chain that was out of Dubai. And when they were explaining all the, capabilities of it i was like oh it sounds just as good as polygon if not um but it sounds like they more so did it because they're like well, we're trying to partner with more companies in dubai and like build up dubai's like crypto ecosphere which has been like really going off for them over there really well it's just more so i feel like dubai's crypto ecosphere is very popular in dubai and like no one else knows about it outside of dubai and so i think that's where like that's where their struggle is right now is they if they get people to just know about it going on they're like oh, people are like holy crap y'all are doing so much and they're like oh yeah we're doing a lot in dubai and you're like where else you're like nowhere and you're like okay so who's it benefit you're like well everyone in dubai and you're like wait what about people outside of dubai they're like oh we're trying to reach it but it's just i i myself included it was just not a place i thought of for crypto period just like I'll be honest, like Southeast Asia, um, Philippines, um, Thailand, um, Singapore are huge hubs for Web3 gaming. I never would have known that if I hadn't been talking to and working alongside a lot of these projects where they have massive, massive uh, India as well, massive casual players 
who are happy to every day play their game for 30 minutes to an hour, either on their commute to work, school, um, just general hanging out, because a lot of them follow the simple play to earn model. And the crypto is far more valuable than the fiat in their country, and they can make more money off that. Also, too, if they're like, well, I'm going to play a game and get paid for it, they're like, this is amazing. But to get back to BTC ordinals, I don't know about that. I don't see why it wouldn't. I think it's just like you said, a lot of people kind of look at Bitcoin as this like dinosaur chain, and they're just like, ah, why would I do anything with that when like everything's taken care of so well? You know, Ethereum is the go to for smart contracts, and then any um, parallel or side chains that work with it, people are happy to use, especially if it lowers gas fees, um, transaction uh, times, and just overall makes it easier for people to interact with their game and get the NFTs or um, tokenize any of their assets. So I don't know about ordinals. I would not knock it and oppose it. I just have not seen it yet. Yeah, it's still just, I mean, they literally only came out, I believe, in January of this year. <clears throat> and the marketplaces that you can buy them on have really only been user-friendly and amazing for like, I'll be generous and say three months. So like since March or April uh, of this year. Now, when I go on them, like I remember when I went on them at first, it was like the the wallets were not that great and it was not as developed as, you know, OpenSea or these NFT markets that you see all over the place. And now it's, it's I mean, Magic Eden, Magic Eden, which is one of Solana's biggest marketplaces. And it's, it's basically sort of like one of OpenSea's competitors, OpenSea being the dominant Ethereum marketplace, NFT marketplace. You can buy Bitcoin ordinals on Magic Eden like Snap. It literally takes five minutes. As long as you have the correct wallet and you've got some Bitcoin in it, it connects just like your MetaMask wallet or anything like that. It's totally fascinating. Uh, you know, I, I'll admit that I've spent at least an hour or two just browsing through collections that are just purely art collections. Wondering, you know, hmm, should I be spending Bitcoin on this? Should I do this? You know, I like to take leftover sats and put them into Bitcoin ordinals. And I only, I try and only buy art and stuff like that that I would actually want to digitally put on my wall that is that is fun and is interesting. But it is a fascinating landscape that I think is just going to continually develop. It has made Bitcoin super fun again. Not that it wasn't fun before, but it has been super fun to a mainstream audience. It's bringing builders back to Bitcoin. And... I want to emphasize here for the beginners that are sort of listening. There are, there are a lot of people in crypto that when you talk about Bitcoin, will sort of give what you said, Matthew. They'll be like, why are you talking about like this old dinosaur chain like nobody does anymore? Things like that. I understand why people think that way. But maybe the better way to think about it is the internet is built on what's called TCP, ICP. Or maybe it's TCP, IP. I can never remember. I'm not a programmer. And all that that really does is just send the information packets that we're now using to do this broadcast or check your email or do whatever. And everything else is built on that basic functional layer. And that's kind of what Bitcoin is in the crypto market. It wasn't developed to do all this cool stuff that we're doing on it right now. It was developed to be very simple and, and secure. And so the fact that it can still do all these things is sort of just miraculous in itself. And then, of course, since nobody controls it, it's not part of an organization. Um, it's not, you know, it's already been deemed by the the SEC and the IRS as a 
commodity, so you don't have to worry about it getting banned or anything like that. It's, I think it's just going to continue forever, and it is sort of the underpinning and the foundation of the crypto market. And I'm, I'm pretty excited to see what sort of Web3 gaming applications can be built on top of it or integrated into it. Because you mentioned people playing a game as a play-to-earn model, and they're getting these tokens. They're usually Ethereum-based tokens, Polygon-based tokens, Solana-based tokens, one of the Layer 2 networks. But if you could earn Satoshis for playing games, um, which I think there's probably some games out there that you can do. I don't pretend to know the actual market. I mean, it's like getting paid gold dust to play poker or something like that in the Old West. Like, It could sort of change your life. And I, I definitely want to go in, in this direction. Me and you are approximately the same age. Obviously, we're brothers. We grew up together. We grew up playing video games on the N64, PlayStation, whatever. How many times did mom tell us, hey, you got to stop playing video games or don't play video games too much? You're not going to play video games for a living, right? More than I have 10 fingers on my hand. And I love telling her now, I say, you know, mom, no shade on you. I just know you were doing the best possible. That was true when we were growing up. But if you look at the people that make millions of dollars playing video games on Twitch or in esports or in other sorts of stuff, sorry, mom, I should have been playing more video games. I could have been a millionaire now playing video games. And now you just up that if you're playing for, you know, if you were playing a virtual poker tournament and the the winner got one Bitcoin, that's $30,000. That's an asset that's going to keep going up that everybody wants. The sky is sort of the limit there. So Bitcoin and the evolution of Web3 gaming, I hate to sound cliche, we're still just super early. We're still just like so, so early. So, but we could talk about that forever. I'd love to know your thoughts on that before we briefly touch on um, Red Dead Redemption 2 being the greatest game of all time. I mean, I would just say that that is definitely, I think people will build on it eventually. I think a lot of what happened is in the early days of Web3 Gaming, the play-to-earn model was the go-to. And then they realized it was really hard to keep user retention because you were essentially relying on the ads to make revenue, spending said revenue to get the crypto to pay out people to keep playing the game. And you were kind of stuck in this consummation cycle where you're like, I could be making a lot more money if people just wanted to play my game and buy my assets. Obviously, once NFTs came into place, totally changed the game because now you could tokenize assets in your game, sell them. You don't care if you sell them for a dollar and they resell for 10,000. You get the royalty fees. You're like, I can just keep bankrolling and going. And then also, as with the Battle Royale games and the seasons and the weapons and the skins and the characters, you're like, not only can I continue to release packs, now people are doing loot crates, loot boxes. Um, some people, depending on their game, will call it something else. But essentially, you're like, it's no different than gambling. It's just instead of going, well, I'm going to buy this one asset, the rarest one. You don't know if you'll get the rarest one. You buy a crate and you either get anything from common to legendary. Then you can choose, oh, well, I got a legendary item. Just like with CryptoKitties did. You're like, I can resell it for whatever I want and let the market demand the price. Or you can go, oh, no, I, this is sweet. I just wanted this to play the game. I'm going to play it for a long time. But then if you ever get bored of the game and you're like, oh, I think I'm done playing this game, you could sell your asset. I mean, I think about all the games I put hours and hours in just for fun. Like I, I wanted to collect things. I wanted to do completionist. 
And then when it's done, it's like, what do you have to show for it? You're like, I mean, technically nothing. You're like, it's just like, what am I going to do? Show somebody be like, check out this sick weapon I got. Check out, I got all the trophies on PlayStation, Xbox. So like, I guess that's cool. Um, some people really like that. But like, at least with Web3 gaming and tokenization, you could literally be like, nah, dude, I spent about 40, we'll just even go crazy. I spent 400 hours playing this game. I got three legendary items. I was able to resell all those for... um like a thousand dollars each you're like so i just made like three thousand dollars you're like technically i got paid for every hour i played the game if you want to look at it that way as opposed to before you're like well i was just playing for entertainment my time was my own money that i spent as an asset to play and enjoy the game and so to wrap this up what i'm getting to is it is definitely shifted away from the play to earn model and now what they're doing is they're just making good fun to play games that they want people to come play the game first off just like warzone for call of duty it's a free game to play but you could spend a lot of money fortnite included um games where it's free to play but you could spend money on the in-game assets or shop if you wanted and i think that has become the ticket model with web3 gaming now because it works really well in traditional gaming that if you make a fun to play game people will continue to play it and especially if you do seasonal aspects to it, then you just continue to bankroll whatever your tokenized assets are in the game. Talk about a game that I've spent hundreds of hours on and have nothing to uh, show for it. Call of Duty, of course. <clears throat> I guess what I really get out of it is uh, we like talking on the phone while playing Call of Duty. So really, it's it's just something to do while talking on the phone instead of just twiddling your thumbs. But legitimately... How many times have we gotten first place as a team or second or third place or whatever? And it's like, we get points in the game and they're meaningless to me. I mean, if I think that literally if we would have started some sort of uh, Twitch stream or tried to commodify it with how much we've played, we would at least have like made enough money to go to McDonald's a couple of times. But now it's like, what do, what do I have? Cool. I have XP on Call of Duty. And so the real promise of Web3 gaming is just a commodification, a legitimate commodification of labor that you spend in somebody's ecosystem, right? So it's like you being the player, us being the player in Call of Duty is good for them. It gets their user count up. People have other people to play with. It makes the game more robust and fun. It introduces a human element. So you're not having to play against AIs that like aren't as cool. Um, of course, you know, talking on the headset, talking to people, that is a whole another crazy element. But it's like without the players for any game, doesn't matter whether it's poker, chess, Call of Duty, or some new virtual reality octopus game. It, like without players, you don't have a game. But when you're not rewarding those players, it's definitely a hierarchical model um, where you know, all the spoils just go to the top, which I think was fair in earlier times as the creator of a game um, when there was no internet and things like that. But I think Web3 gaming is just going to democratize it so much to where you're not only going to be a player, you're going to be a fractional owner because of the labor you've put in to help this ecosystem develop. And like I said, we're still... So early on this, there are people definitely in the traditional gaming community and even Web3 that sort of disagree and they want to keep that model. And then there's people on the other end of the extreme who's just like, we give 100% of the proceeds to the player and like we don't make any money. And you're like, well, that's not going to be sustainable long term. Um, so 
it's a fascinating time, fascinating place. Um, Red Dead Redemption 2 is the greatest game of all time, and would love your comments. I mean, yeah, I, I love Red Dead Redemption 2. You, funny enough, you never would have played it if I hadn't bought it for you. Um, but that's a perfect example of what we have yet to see is games that are essentially directed as movies as well. I have not seen that yet in the Web3 gaming sector because how would you tokenize that? You're like, I'm tokenizing the the cutscenes. I'm tokenizing the movie. You're like, what it would just be somebody goes yeah this is an amazing like i'm trying to imagine red dead red dead redemption 2 as a web 3 game and it wouldn't other than like the guns or the outfits or the things you collect in game you know maybe animal skins or stuff like that that's what i could see be tokenized but then you're like the actual storyline itself you're like there's almost no need to tokenize that if the storyline is what attracts people into play and they enjoy the game truly and then all those other things get tokenized with it then that's just a bonus to people who go, oh, yeah, this is sick. Like, I'm in it because the game isn't fun to play. The storyline is amazing. I'm sucked in. I want to know the story from beginning to end. And also, I get to tokenize all these outfits, weapons, things along the way. You're like, and I get to own them. It's not I just earn them in game. Like, I could sell them to people later down the line. You're like, oh, pretty dang cool. And I can definitely see how people would get behind that if that's something they care about. And most gamers I meet, are really into that concept period because they understand how in the past they're like, yeah, um, I can grind for hours, days, years, literally in a game. And all somebody has to do is turn off the button on the server and you go, Oh, it's all gone. There's no backup. You don't get any of it back. And they're like, but by tokenizing it, you go, even though the game got shut off, I kind of have like these historical artifacts of Mm -hmm. what the game used to be. And people can collect it and go man remember this game it was so great it's crazy this is still around and exists and so it'll be interesting to see if that's what actually happens because i have to imagine some web3 games will eventually go off the air or cease to exist and people will just go well the assets don't cease to exist just they're no longer usable or playable in the game and there will probably be people who go dude i like grew up on this game like i want to still own some of the assets and trade them so that's always one of the biggest things i've seen with people is they're like the fact that you could control the game one one thing i've actually seen that i thought was really interesting Some people have even talked about, they're like, I would love it if they would tokenize the game code, like maybe broken up into a hundred NFTs. And so they're like, that way you could buy it and go, oh yeah, even if the game got taken offline and like basically the creators abandoned it, if you could get those hundred people to band together and piece the code back together, you could be like, oh, we could just relaunch the game on a different server and be like, hey, it's not dead. It's just no longer connected to the old game. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. I don't know how well it would work in actuality. I'm I'm not a developer, so I can't say. But I I guess the main thing I'm getting to is people definitely like the idea of controlling their assets and controlling the game to a degree. And like you said, being an owner of a game and being a part of that community in more than just like spirit of the game. You know, like there are people who are like, I love Mario Kart. I love the Mario series. You're like, yeah, but even though you've bought every Mario game, like Nintendo can just tomorrow go, that's it. Mario's not cool anymore. He's done. We're not making any more Mario games. And you go, what the heck, man? I'm invested in Mario. They're like, too bad. He's not profitable anymore. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that because like as as I hear the words come out of your mouth, it's just like, oh, like Mario could never be, you know, Mario could never be canceled or they would never remove Mario from the market or things like that. But, you know, we just really don't know that. It's like, I'm a big fan of humanity. I'm a big, I'm a positive person. I I generally think the best of people. 
But when you understand the concept of, of counterparty risk, it's like, hey, in 30 years, um, Mario just may not be a thing. Like Nintendo will have all new leadership. Nintendo might not even exist as a company. You know, things can change. And you only have to look at certain historical periods to see that things that were once enormously popular no longer exist today in 2023, sort of through no fault of their own or no fault, you know, through individuals. And so it's an interesting thing because obviously there's there's great parts to tokenization, just like you said, tokenizing the code to a game and having that exist forever. There's obviously also bad aspects of tokenization. You could tokenize stuff that maybe you wouldn't want to exist, but now it's on the blockchain and you can't get rid of it. But to sort of go back to our Red Dead Redemption example, um, as we sort of head towards the the end here, because I want to be conscious of your time, I often think about, yeah, the storyline of Red Dead Redemption maybe doesn't need Web3 aspects or tokenization efforts, but the majority of my time playing Red Dead Redemption 2, which obviously you introduced me to, so I think we're equal now. I introduced you to Bitcoin, you introduced me to Red Dead Redemption 2. I think mine is going to be slightly more profitable, but we can fight about that later. Um, the Most of my time has been in free play, where I'm just, I'm roaming around on my horse, I'm hunting, I'm meeting people, I'm getting money, I'm doing all this sorts of stuff like that. And you could sort of argue that there's a crafting element to Red Dead Redemption, there's a collecting, there's a gathering aspect. If you want to get certain elements in Red Dead Redemption, there's clearly a marketplace for them, right? There's only a certain there's only certain places in the map where you can shoot the bear. The bear is only available during certain times. There's only certain places where you can get an alligator. In order to get a perfect alligator skin, you have to do certain tasks that if you're not good at it, you're going to get an imperfect one. And so there is actually, even if the labor is only five minutes, there is an actual amount of labor that has to go into collecting these digital items. And once you could tokenize those digital items and give them to somebody who doesn't want to put in the labor, they don't want to go to Lemoyne and wander around the swamps and get the perfect alligator skin and do all this sort of stuff like that, but they still want to make this particular piece of clothing with the alligator skin, or they want to sell it, or they want to give it to somebody for some reason, I see no reason why there couldn't be a, a tokenized marketplace for that. And then you could get into all sorts of other stuff um, just in the open world aspect. And I've played around in the online version of Red Dead Redemption 2, and the currency they use is gold, obviously, like makes sense from a historical perspective. It's not nearly as robust, I think, as it could be. Um, and it, it suffers from a lot of the same problems as like the open world of Grand Theft Auto does too. And it just could be way more dynamic. It could be more efficient through marketplace dynamics. And it, it just could be, I think, a lot more interesting and fun. But you're stuck there within Rockstar's ecosystem. You've got to play with Rockstar's rules, and it's sort of a black box, right? It's just closed in there. So you could grind as much as you want to and do all sorts of cool stuff in Red Dead, but it's not really accessible to the wider world, even though I think it obviously could be. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. And I think that's the main point is that um, game developers are knowing that there's still things they have yet to figure out what to commodify in Web3, but they realize they're like, there are some people who are like, everything needs to be commodified. And you're like, no, everything does not need to be commodified. They're like, there's a delicate balance to good gameplay that people want to consistently engage with, finding the assets they want to tokenize, commodify, and own in said game, and then kind of making a healthy blend of the 
Yeah, I think I think the optimal solution would be it's always better to have the freedom to choose, right? And a, a sort of sure. a, a, an interesting example of this is, um, you know, since I live in Denver, enormous sunshine state, <clears throat> the sun is free, right? It's you can get free vitamin D. It's good for depression. It's just it's nice. It's great for photos. The sun provides all these free benefits. But if you wanted to commodify the sun, um, you actually can, right? If you ever looked up sun ovens, I've seen people do this at uh, festivals. You can actually make chocolate chip cookies in sun ovens, and they taste pretty damn good. Obviously, everybody knows about solar panels. You can take the sun's rays, commodify them, sell them to people for money. You can use the sun to, uh, you know, boil water. There's all sorts of ways you can take the sun and commodify it and make your essentially you're living off the sun. But you don't have to. Nobody controls the sun. It's just a thing where it's like, hey, if I want to use it to make money, I can. If I not, it's here in open access to all. And it's sort of a win-win situation. It benefits everybody. That may, may not be the best analogy in the world, but it's sort of an interesting analogy for an open and democratic technological system and these blockchains. I just think it would be more interesting if Red Dead Redemption 2 or these games sort of allowed the option and see what organically develops, see if there's a market that develops, see if it brings in more users, something like that. Because um, you have you know, you know, have competing metaverse platforms that sort of do this, but they sort of don't. Like I said, we're still so early that maybe this is all just going to get worked out in five years. But if it benefits the players, I tend to benefit, think that it's going to benefit the game um, in the same way that... You know, if, if Bitcoin survives as money, it benefits all the people that are building on top of it because if you have money, you can build a robust foundation for all sorts of other stuff. If Ethereum is going to be the computer in the sky and you can program it to do all sorts of things and the program works and there's not huge hassles, it's going to benefit people that are building software on top of it ad infinitum. It's just you want to build the best products possible and let people choose whether they want to use them, not coerce them into using them. And people will sort of naturally figure it out through some trial and error that hopefully is not financially devastating. It usually isn't because there's there's a lot of people that have come before you and done other stuff. Could not agree more. And I think it'll just be as it develops, we'll see. Because, I mean, we're just, even just from three years ago, Web3 Gaming has come so much farther. So I think it'll be interesting to see how it continues to evolve and basically how the players interact with the games and how their needs and desires change much just like in traditional gaming has it is a totally ever-evolving market and and like you said forget even web3 gaming i mean i know that's the focus of this show just crypto in general three years bitcoin during the covid pandemic uh was down to six thousand dollars you can look up bitcoin obituaries they were saying it was it was dead pretty much the rest of the crypto market followed it um, if you were to say at that point, hey, all this stuff has been a fun experiment, but maybe it's just sort of going away, you could have been right. There was nothing to stop you. Now we have institutional investors that are looking at Bitcoin as a financial asset. Never mind all the cool building stuff that I talked about. There's uh, big portfolios that have um, ETH in there. Um, obviously, the ETH ecosystem is bigger than ever. It's the standard for smart contracts. People build all sorts of decentralized applications on it. Then... <laughs> You just have to go down the list of coin market cap. Just look at the top 25 and look at the productions that they're doing. I've mentioned, uh, I don't think I've mentioned it during this podcast, but I'm also a pretty big fan of Avalanche. 
Avalanche literally partnered with Amazon Web Services in January of this year to help them launch a bunch of stuff in the cloud. So I think it's fair to say that this technology is extremely useful and it, it, it's only going to keep growing and keep innovating. A lot of the OGs like Bitcoin, Ethereum, Dogecoin, whatever cryptos have been here for a while, they'll, they'll probably stay and they'll probably be here serving their purpose. But if you thought that things that have just been crazy, you know, just this year uh, with Bitcoin ordinals and stacks continue to develop and just on Bitcoin, arguably the simplest cryptocurrency, five years from now, all the development just sheerly in the technology of, of crypto technologies and this sort of new software boom, it's going to make your head spin. It's going to be crazy. And so you just got to keep your head on straight, be better safe than sorry, self-custody your assets, do your own research, and um, have fun. I think I'd, I think I'd end it on that. Have fun. I was about to say I couldn't think of a better way to end the podcast, so I'm going to say, yeah, that, that's a great way to wrap it up. Nathan, thank you for being on. As always, speaking with me, educating my audience, and overall just being a good person to talk to. I always appreciate it. You are welcome, Matthew. Uh, if people want to reach out to me for anything, I'm a big deal on LinkedIn. Um, I'm just by my name on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter at the Nathan Simone. And I'm trying to think about any other places that I am. I'm really just concentrating on LinkedIn and Twitter these days because uh, I'm actually looking for a new organization to purvey my knowledge to. As you can tell, I, I enjoy the podcasting, but I also like the crypto history. And you know, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the crypto markets. So happy to come on whenever you need me to break stuff down that's happening in the news or talk about Web3 gaming with you. I'm, I know that it's going to evolve just even in the, the coming months. And it's always fun to talk to you. I just hope that next time that we talk, maybe you have like a cat on your lap or maybe uh, I know you're thinking about getting a new puppy. Maybe there's a new puppy there. You might have to get two or three more mics just so this is sort of a more robust uh, podcast that you're doing. But like like I said, everybody, I had to. I was like seventh in line here. I had to give him half a Bitcoin to even come on. It's just... It's a real grind. This guy is just, his trajectory is like this. And don't say that when he's in the stratosphere, uh, you didn't see that the rocket was. Well, I appreciate that. We'll make sure to have in the show notes everywhere people can reach out and connect with you, as well as any relevant uh, portfolios for any perspective offers and places you can, you know, offer your knowledge to. But Nate, thank you. As always, we'll definitely have you on the show again. See you, my boy. Well, friends, that's another episode down. If you enjoyed this podcast, we would really appreciate you rating it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you can rate and wherever you listen to and get your podcast. It would mean the world to us and help get this podcast to people who truly are involved in Web3 gaming, blockchain, and cryptocurrency and want to learn more and stay on top of these emerging technologies. If you have any queries, want to reach out about any collaborations or advertisements, as well as want to reach out with any improvements you think we could make on the podcast, please email us at theweb3gamer at proton.me. We would love to hear from you and take every response very seriously. Take care and keep gaming, my friends.